Hi, it's Fraser here. I hope you've had a wonderful Christmas break so far. Before we get into this special end-of-year edition of the Spiked podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who has supported us here at Spiked. It's thanks to those of you who have made donations and purchases from the Spiked shop that we're able to reach more people than ever with our pro-freedom, pro-democracy journalism. The most direct way to support Spiked is by making a donation. All donations, large and small, are fantastic, and regular monthly donations are even better. Then there's the Spiked shop, now featuring brand new designs on t-shirts, hoodies, mugs and more. To visit the Spiked shop, just go to spiked-online.com and click the blue shop button in the top right corner. To make a one-off or monthly donation, go to spiked-online.com and hit the red donate button in the top right corner. Any support you can give will make a huge difference to us, so thank you. Now, let's get back to the Spike podcast. Hello and welcome to a special bumper end of year edition of the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and as ever I'm joined by Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. As a special treat today we're also joined by Spike's editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. And Spike columnist Luke Gittos. Hello. We'll be looking back at the past year and focusing on three key themes. Brexit, the environment and wokeness. So what a year it's been for Brexit. In January 2019, Theresa May's withdrawal agreement was put to Parliament for the first time and it suffered the worst defeat for any government bill in modern parliamentary history. And the year has ended with Boris Johnson winning a huge majority in the December election, meaning his version of Brexit will happen in the new year. In between that, we've had several brushes with no deal. The Brexit party has come and gone. The Remainers took to the streets and to the courts. Tom, why don't you kick off this uh, discussion by telling us a bit about what happened? Well, it's just amazing when you list all of those things, just to remember how much has happened in the space of 12 months um, and how, especially since the European elections in May, just how much things have changed. Because again, you think back to 12 months ago, I think around this time last year, it was Theresa May, you know, delayed a vote on her Brexit deal. Uh, we were still very much in the midst of that parliamentary gridlock. Same was going into January, obviously, then the Article 50 deadline of the end of March not being met. And I think the big difference it feels like between 2018, which was, you know, really awful, it felt like in many respects 2019, was the fact 2019 was the point at which we had the opportunity to get back into the process. You know, the electorate was brought back in through the European elections and, of course, through the general election. And it's just fascinating thinking back um, how much the narrative has changed since then. You know, at the beginning of this year, Change UK was set up. Um, this idea that this was going to be the great new hope for politics. Yet if you'd asked any ordinary voter, they would have told you this would have been a non-starter, you know. But again, as soon as we saw, first with the European elections and the Brexit party having been set up six weeks beforehand, you know, romping home with five and a half million votes almost. Um, and then, of course, with this huge general election that we're still kind of absorbing, it just really demonstrated that people still wanted Brexit and that also that the real dynamism in politics really lied with the electorate and they hadn't gone anywhere. And I think mm. the thing that's made 2019 so exhilarating, whereas 2018 was so horrendous, is the fact that whilst in 2018 we were locked out of the process and this just became, Brexit in particular, just became something for elite horse trading and something we had not much to do with, this was the point in which we were allowed to hit back and we hit back pretty hard, it felt like. I mean, that was the thing. It felt for a lot of the year that the Remainers were on top, that they were in charge, that they were calling the shots, that they were able to delay, fudge, prevaricate. But 
you know, it feels like we're out of that tunnel at the moment. Brendan? Absolutely. And I think it's so clear now what the dynamic is, which is when Brexit is in the hands of the political establishment, it gets frustrated and watered down and you have all these explicit discussions about frustrating democracy and and preventing the enactment of what they consider to be a very problematic vote. But as soon as it's returned to the people, as it was in the EU elections this year in May, and then again in the general election, uh, which was fundamentally a Brexit election, that election took place because the establishment couldn't agree on a way out of the Brexit debacle as they view it. When it's returned to the people, they make the same statement again and again, which is we want to leave the European Union, we want you to respect our democratic will, and we want you to do as we instruct you to do. So that's the dynamic. It's it's very, very clear now. The uh, As we've argued on Spike many times, this is the elite versus the people. And I know if you say that these days, they'll call you a fascist and say, <laughs> that's what Hitler said and all this kind of nonsense. But But that's what it is. It's the elite versus the people. And that's pretty clear. I thought the general election in particular was just phenomenal. In my view, it's one of the most positive political events of of recent times and not necessarily because the Tories won. Let's see what the Tories do. I'm going to, you know, withhold my judgment until I see some action from them. But because of the collapse of the Red Wall, the Labour constituencies who switched to the Tories, and because it was so obviously another restatement of the desire for self-government and another restatement of the desire for Brexit and because it defeated the Remainer movement. You know, how can they come back from this? I'm sure some of them will try. But the thing that I found most exciting about it is that politics has been dominated for the past two years by the hysterical rich, by very wealthy people who are in the grip of hysteria and who think fascism is coming and Brexit is a disaster. What the election did is returned the political question of the day to the wisdom of the crowd. And as we have seen very clearly, the crowd is wiser than the elite. And they said, fascism isn't coming. The EU is not the best thing since sliced bread and we still want to leave. So this year, I think we had a very good demonstration of the craziness of elites that are utterly out of touch with public sentiment and the wisdom of ordinary people who know that politics is not as screwed up as the establishment says and that leaving the European Union is a very good idea. Ella, was there a moment that stood out for you this year? Anything striking? Well, Tom's already mentioned Change UK, but I think it's just (laughs) worth looking at them for a second. This is a party set up with Anna Subri, former Tory, at its head on 18th of February. And we're now talking towards the end of December, just about coming up to Christmas. And the Independent Group for Change, as they changed (laughs) their name to, has declared that it's about to shut down because uh, none of its MPs were elected in the general election. Actually, all 17 MPs who changed their parties lost their seats, which is a fantastic thing. It sort of went unnoticed that Anna Subri had been ditched because she's lost her seat of prominence, both in the media and among the electorate. And she's just been kind of swept away. Chuka Amuna as well, Luciana Berger. But there's also, it's important to note, I think the wider trend that we had this year of politicians almost completely ditching the idea of party loyalty. And that's not to kind of fetishise the idea of party loyalty, but you did have, you know, the Tory defectors, MPs leaving the Labour Party, switching to the Lib Dems, openly coming out and calling for tactical voting. Previous leaders of parties like Blair coming out and saying, actually, you shouldn't vote for my party, the Labour Party, but you should think about where you can vote to stop Brexit. All of these things kind of, it really shook the idea of 
you know, politicians having principled stances when it came to their politics and when it came to their parties in the sense of party loyalty. And I think that was in part a reason why trust was such a massive issue in this election. You know, it came up in the Ashcroft poll. It came up in, uh, you know, just any time you spoke to someone, they talked about the trustworthiness of politicians and this continual flitting around, essentially in the hopes of a seat, really, mm. is what politicians were doing. I think, you know, they paid dearly for it. And thank God, because Change UK was such a horrendously cringy and reactionary force in politics. I mean, it seemed to indicate the sameness, the essential sameness of all the kind of establishment parties that, you know, people often joked that you couldn't put a cigarette paper between Labour and the Tories years ago during the Blair years. But that obviously came true if people were willing to switch parties so easily, sometimes more than once in the in the space of a year. Uh, Luke? Well, one thing I think I really valued about the general election was the sense that the people were back involved in the process. Because as Brendan suggested, when I spent time observing the legal cases and the various sort of legal machinations that were going on at the Tory party, you know, firstly the prorogation, then this challenge to the prorogation, then the idea that uh, Boris Johnson would try and get his way around the provisions of the Ban Act, which obliged him to seek an extension to Brexit by sending two letters. And then this was this became this huge legal question about whether that would amount to contempt of court. Lawyers just seem to be everywhere mm. in the Brexit process. And one Im- amazingly satisfying thing about the December general election is that all of that legal game playing is now irrelevant <laughs> and will in the history of Brexit be a very tiny and insignificant footnote. And everyone involved will now be rendered in the historical dustbin. You know, the people who have tried with everything they had to try and slow this down and stop it through their own access to courts, to lawyers, to the wheels of power, they have been brushed aside and democracy did it, you know. So I thought that was a really satisfying outcome for December because it's easy to forget that back in September, we were still so ingrained in that in, in the Supreme Court decision and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And lawyers having their little moment in the sun, I'm, I'm just very thankful that that is over now. I was thinking back to January and how the year began with that absurd, another legal issue, which was the harassment, apparent harassment of Anna Subri and Mm. Owen Jones. And looking back on it now, James Goddard, who was eventually convicted for that video that he made, apparently harassing Anna Subri. And it sort of set the tone for the year because I think we kept coming back to that question Mm. of what do we expect of our representatives? Do we want them to be sort of Berkey and, you know, we vote for you in order to use your judgment and decide what's right for us? Or do we want you to represent our will? Are you the presence of our will in Parliament? And I think the the James Goddard case, you know, he ended up convicted and sentenced to 200 hours community service, which was a bit of a, and and a sentence of imprisonment, which was suspended. And I just think, looking back on it, how outrageous that was, Mm. because not only did you have more vociferous, you know, protests from the Remain camp later Mm. on in the year, which didn't even bat an eyelid of the cops, but the sense in which there was a way in which that, that, that interaction actually became symbolic for the year. You know, people were desperate for their politicians to do what they had voted for. And in the end, that's the model of representation that won out. The idea that politicians are elected to enact the people's will. I think that is the message of the December mm-hmm. general election. And also the the role of rhetoric in all of this, which was really fascinating over the course of the year, it really came to a head, of course, in that big showdown in Parliament a couple of months ago, where Boris Johnson was kind of rounded on by all of these various Labour MPs in particular, who had a go at him for his language in relation to the Ben Act, calling it the Surrender Act and betrayal. I mean, Paula Sheriff MP, who is another Labour MP who lost her seat this time around, saying that using the word betrayal was in some sense kind of inciting violence. Mm. Um, and this is a point that Brendan's made before, is the fact that first of all, they don't want us to have Brexit, then they want 
want to stop us talking about them stopping Brexit, you know, and it was this really absurd element. On one hand, it was just so obviously cynical because it was an attempt to, you know, dampen down discussion, to demonise Boris Johnson, to demonise other Brexiteers as kind of hard right throwbacks. But it also did um, speak to that point that Brendan raised earlier about just the amount of hysteria that was kind of uncorked since Brexit and really came to a head this year with a lot of the discussion about rhetoric, with a lot of the discussion about language, with the Stop the Coup protest, where again, a a prorogation that was, let's face it, slightly longer than usual, Mm. turned into this this idea that we were on the slippery slope to fascism and again people very passionately seemingly very sincerely talking about this as if it was the biggest threat to democracy meanwhile they were all actively involved in stopping democracy i think that whole debate about language was really revealing this year i think i think one of the key things following on from that is just how it, and it's really this is such an en- enlivening part of the of 2019 is how little cut through all of that stuff has because and even for people like us people at spike who consider ourselves pretty immune to the hysteria of the chattering classes sometimes you find yourself getting swept up in this stuff and you even might find yourself wondering if perhaps politicians are using extreme language maybe they've gone too far but what's great about particularly the general election at the end of the year is how little cut through any of that crap had, whether it was Paula Sheriff saying, you know, humbug is the worst word you could ever use, or the stop the coup protests as if, you know, the UK had become kind of some banana republic, and all the legal cases, as as Luke says, the, the public just rejected all of that. Mm. I mean, very, very clearly said, no, we don't accept your hysterical analysis. We don't accept your control of attempt to control language. And we don't accept your legal challenges to the largest democratic vote in the history of this country. The glorious thing about this year, of course, is that, you know, people like Gina Miller and Michael Heseltine and People's mm-hmm. Vote and and Paul Mason and all these other people who are either very well connected or very wealthy or both, who have spent so long using their unequal power to try and thwart Brexit, have now been put back in their box by housewives in Wrexham and former <laughs> miners in Blythe Valley and retail assistants in Blackpool South and all these other seats that voted, that, which broke decades and decades of tradition to register register their disapproval of the sec- second referendum-driven Labour Party. So I think we've had a really good lesson this year, as we did in 2016, but if anything, even more so in this year, because it follows three and a half years of hysteria, we've had a really good lesson of the importance of democracy and the importance of having the corrective of collective wisdom against the the jaundiced and sometimes hysterical outlook of people who are often quite disconnected from society. So I I think that this year we've seen the power of democracy in play and that's something really worth celebrating. You're listening to The Spiked Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher and more. And if your provider allows you to, why not give us a rating and a review while you're there? It really helps new listeners find the show. Environmentalism made a major return this year. Climate change was rebranded as climate emergency and we were introduced to a whole new set of colourful characters, from Extinction Rebellion to Time Person of the Year, Greta Thunberg. The UK Parliament declared a climate emergency and legislated to reduce CO2 emissions to net zero by 2050. 
Some even tried to claim the general election was the climate election, our last chance to save the planet from being engulfed in flames. Brendan, environmentalism has always been around, but it's fair to say it's been much higher up the agenda this year. I mean, what's going on? Yeah, well, that, th- this is another example of things going up the agenda in the view of the political class and not on the agenda at all in the view of ordinary people. I mean, if you look at how the Green Party did across the country in the election, you know, a thousand votes here and there, they didn't do well at all. Th- that hysteria didn't cut through. I think environmentalism went on a very interesting journey this year and a very telling journey. I mean, as you say, Greta Thunberg is the, is now the, the, the goddess or the, the godchild or the messiah, I don't know what, of, of the green cult and her worshippers in the Extinction Rebellion movement who are literally hysterical. I mean, they are literally out of control. Anyone who has witnessed them parading through the streets, weeping and chanting and dressed in red and their faces painted. I mean, these are not normal people. This is, this is a, a doomsday cult. It's very millenarian. And millenarianism often does follow the collapse of traditional progressive ideas and traditional left-wing ideas. Very often people who feel hopeless when their political viewpoint falls apart will embrace a kind of end of world, very depressing, very apocalyptic worldview that happened at the end of the 1800s and it's happening uh, at the end of the 1900s through to the 21st century. I, I think the, the the thing I find most interesting about environmentalism, it's become very clear this year what role it plays. And the role it fundamentally plays now is as a kind of top-down, elitist and increasingly authoritarian check on ordinary people's behaviour and ordinary people's political view. So it's fascinating this year the number of times we were told climate change is more important than Brexit. I mean, that was Mm. the kind of mantra. And it was so explicitly an attempt to say, listen, the destruction of the planet by idiots like you is more important than the question of democracy, more important than the question of leaving the European Union. So I think what we saw this year, particularly through the veneration of Greta as this kind of modern day saint come to save us from our sinful behaviour and save us from doom, I think we've seen the real energising force behind environmentalism, which is an elitist attempt to keep a check on populist sentiment. And I think that's become very clear. Luke, what what are your thoughts on Greta? Well, we've just had perhaps Greta's first scandal, which is where she's (laughs) tweeted a photograph of herself sitting on a train by the the door on the ground. She did a Corbyn and said that she'd uh, had to sit there because the train was very crowded. And then the train company said that she actually had a first class ticket and a first class seat. Now, it then came out afterwards, I think, that actually she'd missed the train that she had the first class ticket for. So I had to get on a more crowded one. And then I sort of stopped myself thinking, I'm talking about a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> what am I playing at? And I think it, she, I, I really do, there's a serious aspect to this, which is that a, a 16-year-old girl has been placed in a position of political veneration. Mm. What happens now if she fancies changing her mind, which a lot of 16-year-olds are prone to do, or 17-year-olds or 18-year-olds? It does seem that the adults around Greta have basically made her a saint and made it so that it's going to be very difficult for her to do anything else with her life or to do anything which involves moving off the course that she's on. I mean, Lord knows how much is now invested in this young girl, you know, just materially and financially. And, you know, politically and personally for her, it must be incredibly difficult for her to, to live a normal life. And I think when we look back on this veneration, there, there, there may well be a sort of really personal cost to it. 
And just anecdotally as well, just talking about an- environmentalism, I mean, I think I've had a lot of conversations with people this year and when they do hold to environmentalist politics, I have noticed that they've become a lot more nihilistic in their outlook mm. and have become a lot more convinced actually that there is very little worth in doing anything with their lives. And it does create this quite depressive outlook in people. And I'm I'm sure that is generalizable to some extent because it's a logical conclusion to the worldview. So I do worry that as Brendan suggests that the kind of the effects of this outlook on a, on a generation of young people could be very damaging. Yeah, there's I mean there's a lot of talk of of young people, especially you know young children, being needlessly stressed and distressed by you know the view that there might not be a world around when they grow up. Um, Ella. Well, speaking of children, I think the one of the most remarkable things for me was the emergence of the birth strike movement. It's moved to kind of prominence in popular discussion about the climate emergency and Extinction Rebellion. And there's been movements and organisations about population control for a very long time. Um, It's a kind of well-established dystopian view of how to tackle climate change is to have Malthusian idea of it's less people is the solution. But the birth strike movement headed up by a number of young women, but most prominently a, a musician called Blythe Papino, is essentially arguing that young women who really desperately wanted to have children, really, you know, cared about having children, were forcing themselves to not do it because they were both terrified that either the planet would be over before their kids were five, um, but also that it would be this very selfish thing to bring children into a world that was heading towards destruction. And that really quite frightened me, actually, both that the idea that young women would be so, uh, you know, captured by this dystopian view, but also at the kind of the the deep narcissism involved in some a movement like that, which is that, you know, you and your body, woman's body, would be the solution to climate change. Now, forget mm. about politics, forget about policies on anything, energy. It's all down to your womb. There's an incredible amount of pressure to put on women, but it's <laughs> it's it's also this this is a really good example of how a lot of climate activism has turned into what are you doing? You know, mm, yeah. as a grandparent, are you going out and forcing yourself to get arrested? As a child, are you missing school? As a mother, are you aborting your babies? You know, all of this stuff is shows how incredibly self-serving a lot of this is. And I have to shout out and you know, another appalling event that happened this year in relation to climate change and population control. I don't know if any of you guys were aware that in July it was World Population Day. Um, I'm sure you can remember how you celebrated. (laughs) And the United Nations marked it by uh, announcing this campaign Thriving Together, which got a write-up in The Guardian Mm. and, you know, several bits of praise. And essentially what it was, was a campaign coloured by climate change to say that we need to stop Africans having babies because they're wrecking the biodiversity of Mm. those countries. Not dodgy in the slightest. Not, you know, (laughs) talk about out-and-out racism. There should be less black people in the world. But all of that has kind of, because of Extinction Rebellion, child rearing and childbirth has become centre mm. to, and population control has become centre to the climate discussion. And that really is quite frightening because that leads to some very dark roots. And it's the link as well between kind of extreme environmentalism and that extreme anti-humanism and how mm. those two things go together, which I think, you know, says something about the fact that Roger Hallam, one of the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion, has also flirted with some very strange comments, shall we say, about the Holocaust this year, saying it was, quote, just another fuckery in human history. Um, that kind of extreme anti-humanism, that incredibly nihilistic bent, I think, expresses itself in all kinds of strange ways. One of the very positive things to happen this year is the fact that, given the fact that the environmental movement really kind of overreached itself, became incredibly extreme, not just in its policy prescriptions, but 
but you know it's theatrics on the streets of London for instance when Extinction Rebellion were blocking roads and all the rest of it is that it has generated a real public backlash in a way that it hasn't done probably up to now particularly in Britain obviously you saw that first of all with just a recognition that these people were just talking nonsense you know they were finally kind of held to account for you know claims that they'd made that you know children are going to die in 10 to 20 years no one thinks that <laughs> there is no consensus behind that position and they were finally brought to task for some of those claims but of course it really came to a head um, in the what's become known as the Battle of Canning Town where you had these two Extinction Rebellion protesters during their what was it week or two weeks of of disruption in London decided that at the, at the height of rush hour they were going to climb on top of this Jubilee Line train unfurl their banner and disrupt people's lives you know they looked a perfect picture both of them looked like kind of like junior lecturers you know one of the ponytails <laughs> it was just too wonderful and people took matters into their own hands they dragged them off the train and they again it was just this brilliant rejection of this incredibly authoritarian movement which it's despite the fact it claims it's about you know the world coming together to deal with this problem so often takes the form of pushing people around yeah. of making their lives more difficult um, and seeing a bit of a reaction to that I think was a really positive thing I thought one of the, the, the one of the best things about the battle of Canning Town was that woman who just shouted out the world is not coming to an end and you think this is an ordinary woman at seven in the morning trying to get to work having to you know counter the hysteria of the green movement I think the battle of Canning Town and and other stuff in relation to Extinction Rebellion was very interesting because it also illustrated a class dynamic in Mm. the green stuff this year which I think became a bit more pronounced which is that you had these incredibly often very posh double-barreled people on the streets of London uh, or, you know, Greta Thunberg, who comes from a wealthy country, basically dictating to everyone else how they should behave, what they should do, and, as Ella says, even lecturing people in the third world about how many children they can have. Uh, I think a lot of people are sick and tired of hearing from well-off Western privileged teenagers and might want to hear from i don't know indian african brazilian teenagers who probably will have a different view of the world so it's another one of those issues like brexit where the great thing about 2019 is that the real dividing line on that issue became much more clarified in terms of what's at stake and who's on that side and who's on the other side which was a very useful yeah, and the, the class dynamic was absolutely central to the Gilets jaunes protest, which, of course, while sparked towards the end of last year, carried on throughout this year, sparked by an environmental fuel tax. And, you know, it is, it's often the case and protesters say, you know, we, we do care about climate change, but why are you going about it in this way, in a way that is hurting ordinary people? But unfortunately, the policies so often do that. Luke, did you want to add something? Well, on, just on the Gilets jaunes, I've been shocked at just how little the... The, any account of it has been taken up in Britain either by the left or by anyone else you know it's almost difficult to know exactly what's going on you have to find out largely from Twitter and I think it's all for Fraser oh, from, and from Fraser's <laughs> obviously brilliant articles um, <laughs> but but I think it, it does reflect the fact that that form of rebellion is not palatable to the left in this country I think it says it says a lot about their approach to they see that as something to fear mm. because it that, that protest is at least in part driven by a rejection of the EU, by a rejection of the kind of technocratic government that that they're suffering under. And so I think that it speaks to the left's kind of complete complicity with that model of government in, yeah. in many ways. You're listening to the Spike podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. 
If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spike a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Two thousand and nineteen was the year when wokeness went mainstream. Wokeness graduated from the university campus to the police force, the courts, and the mainstream media. People were fired, questioned by police, and in one case were even put in a prison cell for questioning transgender ideology. Politicians on both sides of the Atlantic announced their pronouns. The world was turned upside down as men were allowed to compete in women's sports. Celebrities wanted to be seen as victims of hate crime and literal princesses were pitied as victims of colonialism. Ella, um, what is your woke highlight or low light of this year? (laughs) Well, okay, the low light, there's two, the low light because one that was funny but actually revealed a a bigger problem was the case of Jessica Yaniv in Canada who took several women, some of them immigrant, very poor women, to court for refusing to wax her bollocks, basically. (laughs) And it was one of those things which was an extreme case that put the extreme side of the trans extremism um, into the spotlight and put it on trial. And thankfully she lost um, but it was, it was, you know, we all had a good laugh, I think, about the fact that this, in many ways, unhinged individual was bringing a case around the fact of someone waxing her private parts. But actually, it revealed the extremes to which the trans activist nonsense has been, you know, the, the extent to which it's been allowed to free pass. Mm. Um, and the fact that this even went to court, the fact that someone didn't initially stop this person from kind of essentially harassing um, several women and wrecking their lives, wrecking their businesses. So that was the kind of the low light. And I think it was a wake up call for a lot of people that actually, if you are completely unquestioning, completely uncritical of the more mad ends of trans activism in the shape of Jessica Yaniv, then stupid and damaging stuff happens. But a, a highlight of the kind of woke madness this year, I think has to be, it's a, it's a subtle one, but it, it really was a funny one was, don't know if anyone remembers um, when the Supreme Court case was happening around Brexit this year and Lady Hale mm-hmm. came to prominence, um, not just because she was kind of sassy and made her closing remarks, but specifically because she was wearing a spider brooch. And this trend kicked off on Twitter celebrating the girly swats. And it was a kind of feminist thing of, haha, Trump, haha, Boris Johnson, look at that. You're being defeated by girly swats. And the funny thing was that that then ate itself because black <laughs> feminists came out and saying, Oh, this is, you know, there was articles on Galdem saying this is classic white feminism <laughs> celebrating, you know, someone like Lady Hale, who's the epitome of white feminism. And it was just one of those brilliant moments when you think, I don't need to spend mm. my time criticizing feminism. It does it <laughs> itself. So the girly swat movement, which had white girly swats at its helm, has been reduced to a kind of white feminist colonial project. It's that was a great moment of where woke went weird. Can I can I get in with my favourite woke moment? Just because I'm yeah, terrified someone else is going to take it. Um, <laughs> so this was um, <laughs> when Kamala Harris was still in the running to be the Democratic presidential nominee. A couple of months ago, there was this town hall organised by CNN. It was all on LGBT issues. It was hosted by Chris Cuomo. She walks out on stage and immediately announces, "My pronouns are she, her, and her." 
Christmas. <laughs> and then Chris Cuomo, without really thinking, says, mine too. <laughs> That's quite a funny joke. And yet the response to it, I think, was really telling, was that he was the one who was painted as being ridiculous, over-the-top, yeah. strange, and obviously ultimately bigoted. He was forced to apologise. So the sight of a leading woman in public life who everyone knows is a woman and is a woman, announcing that she is a woman, is not strange in the slightest. <laughs> Chris Cuomo making a joke about this suddenly is very strange. And I thought that was a really interesting moment, actually, in which it just kind of seemed to enter the kind of bloodstream of, of mainstream politics in a way that I thought was really quite strange. And particularly in the US example, I think really demonstrates just how much these people haven't learned the lessons of 2016. They're going further down this kind of woke rabbit hole, which makes, you know, Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2016 look, you know, nowhere near as kind of identitarian, even though it was in many respects. Mm. And it's just really interesting that democratic politicians in America in particular feel that they need to genuflect to this movement, despite the fact that when, as you know, there's been some interesting research this year, it's just such a tiny proportion of the population yeah. who actually believe in this stuff. So I thought that was quite a funny and telling moment. The, but the polling suggests that the vast majority of people are of all races and classes yeah. mm. hate political correctness yeah. and wokeness. Exactly. So. Which I, I think that's a really important revelation that we've had this year because wokeness is effectively a new form of aristocracy. I mean, it's about having the right mannerisms, the right speech, the right language. It's a very bubbled way of thinking about the world. It's a very eccentric way of thinking about the world. It doesn't connect with ordinary people's experiences or views at all. It is, it, you know, it's the neo-aristocracy of, of, of woke correctness. And that's why it grates so explicitly against ordinary people who are always presumed to be racist and transphobic and wrong-headed and and incorrect and ver everything else because it is this it's it's an incredibly elitist endeavor has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with left-wing politics mm. and nothing to do with progressive politics at all i thought one of the fascinating things about wokeness this year is is that it just became incredibly clear that uh, as Ella was pointing out with her example, that it's an unwinnable game. And if you try and play the woke game, you will lose, right? You will, you know, any, especially if you're white and male, if you try and be woke, you'll just be exposed as white and male. I mean, there's no, there's no <laughs> winning. It's an unwinnable game. The only solution to it is to call it out as an incredibly divisive, racialized, censorious and obsessive way of viewing the world. And, has deadly consequences. It has really serious consequences. You know, the year is ending with someone being sacked from their job, Maya Forstater, mm. who has been thrown out of her work she was doing for a charity because she thinks there are two sexes and one sex can't change into the other sex. Mm. And the employment tribunal ruling against her makes it very clear that it is legitimate to sack people on the basis that they believe there are two sexes. And in fact, it goes further and says that views like that are unworthy of respect in a democratic society. So we now have judges decreeing what is worthy of respect and what is unworthy of respect in terms of speech and opinion. Uh, that's the end point of woke politics. And I think that's really when you have to get serious about pushing back, you know, not because of all the crazy, cranky stuff that happens on Twitter. That's very annoying, but it's not that serious. But when you have judges or institutions or laws or the police saying, you can't say that, then you know that there is a real job to be done in terms of defending freedom of conscience and freedom of speech. Yeah, I mean, we have had a kind of awakening among the police force and in the courts, haven't we, Luke? I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a bit of a mixed picture because it's worth remembering the case of Freddie McDonnell, who in September mm -hmm. of this year lost yeah. his high court challenge to be named as his baby's father mm. when he had 
given birth to the baby and Freddie, who is biologically a woman, lost the fight not to be named as the as the father on the birth certificate. So we got very close to the High Court saying that a father could give birth. Yeah. Mm. Which shows, I think, the tension between wokeness and truth. You know, yeah. there is a sense in which wokeness pushes up against the boundaries of what is quite simply true. You know, a father cannot give birth. And we got very close to a judge saying, well, actually, he can. Mm. And you've seen this time and time again, particularly in the discussions around transgendered and so Je- jessica yaniv was another example where you say she's saying i'm a woman and i want you to wax my testicles mm. they're constantly coming up against standards that society reflects to be true and this is why toilets are so often a feature of these discussions and they were again and again we had crises in toilets in uh at london theater you know the, the the stage had a huge debacle around uh, a, a set of articles around the old vic theatre's toilets because basically the old Vic had made all their toilets gender neutral and half the people loved it, half the people hated it. But the point is they keep butting up against truth and Mm. what is actually true about these things. And wokeness tries to create its own version of truth. And that's what a lot of these court cases are about. They're about saying you have to accept this version of what is true. You know, Jessica Yaniv is a woman with testicles. Freddie McDonald is a father who can give birth. And actually, that's when it becomes more and more sinister, when they are able to use the mechanics of the state to completely change what is actually true, or to hide the truth, or to, you know, distort the facts. That's when it gets very worrying. And I think a key problem with that is that is the broader compulsion to lie. So pretty much every article about Je- Jessica and Eve, even the ones that were critical of him, had the phrase, her testicles. Mm. Now, in any uh, normal understanding of the world, now, Ellis just said her bollocks, I presume in an an ironic way, because a woman (laughs) doesn't have bollocks. Um, But her testicles, that phrase was repeated everywhere. I mean, it was in newspaper headlines, and this Mm. is including in in tabloid newspapers, which are normally, and still are in some ways, quite critical of this stuff. So it's the the, um, mainstreaming of a lie. And and the lie Mm. in this case is that Jessica and Eve is a woman. And, and so I think uh, even these extreme, as Ella was saying, even these extreme examples, and, and Jessica Eve is obviously just a very unhinged individual and also racist and forcing ethnic minority women to, f- for some sexual mm. pleasure, to touch his balls. So that's a depraved individual, but it speaks to the broader com- compulsion to lie and, and the broader culture, which says that if you think you're a woman then you are a woman. So even a case like that points to society's unwillingness to say, hold on, stop. There are truths and there are lies, there are facts and there are fictions, and we're going to draw the line here. Well, you can certainly say that wokeness fueled his entitlement, but yeah, Ella. Well, it's just also worth saying that if you step back from all of this and, and look at what has been the reaction by wider society to greater discussion about trans individuals, you know, even trivial things in culture like RuPaul's Drag Race has come over to the UK. And most people have either said, sure, go ahead, Mm. shrug their shoulders. There's been no Mary Whitehouse star marches in the street against perverts or anything. There's Mm. been, in general, polls show, and just generally anecdotally, you can quite safely say, the feeling and sentiment of society towards individuals doing what they like with their own identities is pretty relaxed. It's like chilled out, do whatever you like. We are not a nation of bigots. And so I think that's why, thankfully, the whole woke brigade, even though it does have some serious 
you know, fingers in the pies of power and it, and it does yeah. get hearing and politicians are keen to kind of get on board with it. But the general sentiment of society is, is not violently to react against people being a bit different, but mm. just to say, my God, we don't care about this. So that's why it hasn't, you know, that's partly why the Labour Party didn't do well in the general election. It's partly why all these people aren't getting as much traction. There's not that much outrage about all of this. We should be aware of wokeness, but thankfully most people kind of roll their eyes at these mad individuals and they, and they don't get the reaction thereafter. Well, I think, I think the great irony is that a lot of the woke types will say, that that's because people are right wing because mm. they're bigoted, but actually it's people's innate sense of equality and their innate sense of fairness that is driving their disdain for this movement that wants to put everyone into a racial box that wants to deny that women exist and things like that. Mm. You know, it, it, it grates against all of that. And that obscures the real nature of things as well, because, mm. you know, just moving on to a slightly different tap for a second, I thought it was really interesting how we've seen over the course of this year, the way in which woke politics is really used to effectively insulate quite powerful people from criticism. I mean, the most obvious example of this in Britain is the Harry and Meghan ongoing circus um, and the way in which that both Meghan herself and Harry and obviously a lot of their supporters in the media, etc., have presented any criticism of this quite ridiculous couple in many respects with Mm. all of these ridiculous woke opinions that they they want to, you know, shout from the rooftops and then not expect any criticism. Any criticism of her is racist, you know, and it's really interesting the way in which you can effectively have someone like Meghan Markle, who's obviously very successful in her own right is now literally you know a duchess and yet because of this very warped way of viewing the world because of this kind of imputing motives that takes place because of this kind of ridiculous way in which this lens that is applied to all kinds of different discussions you end up insulating genuinely powerful people from Mm. criticism i think that's one of the things that rankles people as well yeah i think um the the harry and megan thing is a very very good example of where that kind of woke elitist politics is going, which is to create a force field around powerful people and influential ideas and, and political cliques. But, you know, I, I think this year, in fact, it has, if it's illustrated anything, it's that Spike is right to big up those two key values, which is freedom of speech and democracy. Mm. The right to say and criticize and, and, uh, even ridicule all ideas and religions and fads and ideologies. And the right of ordinary people to have their say on the future of the nation. And if we go ahead defending those two values, society will be an infinitely better place. You've been listening to the Spike podcast. That's it for 2019. For more Spike content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the new year.